0: All right, hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love, and thank you for the gift of a morning together at church to sing and pray, and now to look to your word, and uh, Father, we admit that we need your help, and so by your spirit, would you come and teach us, open our eyes, open our ears, help us understand what we read, would you grip our heart with these truths, change us today, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, welcome once again to FBC. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Matt, I'm a pastor, and I just want to invite you to grab a Bible, if you have one, and turn with us to the book of Acts, chapter 4, where we're going to be continuing our sermon series, where for a little while now we've just been walking through the book of Acts, little by little. So if you have a Bible, join us there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the seats in front of you, or if you'd like to uh, follow along on the screen, we'll have the words there, that's okay too, Acts, chapter four, verse Verse 32, hey, um, we have these core commitments as a church that we talk about a lot, maybe um, annoyingly so. We bring them up almost every week. You're like, here we go again. Uh, Worship, connect, grow, and go. Um, The first one, worship, Uh, it's about more than just singing, right? We usually think worship, worship songs, worship music. How was the worship? We think about the music. But worship is more than that, of course. Um, It's about a whole life devotion to God some of the language you use around here. It's it's whole life devotion, walking with Jesus, seeing how how all of life is is committed and devoted to him, which means that what we're about to do together, reading scripture, uh, seeking to understand God's word and apply it to our lives is an act of worship. When we come before God in humility and say, Lord, would you teach me Lord, help me sit at your feet and and let your voice from your word shape me and change me and confront me. And Lord, would you do all you want to do here? That is an act of worship. That's what we're about to jump into. So in Acts chapter 4, Pastor Larry Osborne once made this quip. He said, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus predicted church growth, but prayed for unity. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus predicted church growth, but prayed for unity. Now, predicted might not quite be might not be the right word because uh, what Jesus did was was stronger than just a, a prediction. He declares or guarantees the growth and expansion of the church and yet he, he prayed for unity in John 17. Osborne's point is that should be a clue to us that unity is hard to come by. It's easy to lose. Difficult to retain? Now, unity in the church is not about uniformity. It's not about becoming mindless clones. Uh, It's about when different people with different perspectives and different backgrounds and maybe different preferences or viewpoints can find a way to set aside personal differences or preferences for the sake of the mission, right? For the sake of the greater good or a a larger calling or purpose uh, that they are a part of. Larry Osborne, in some of his books, writes about his naive uh, naivety in early years of ministry, where he just assumed that, hey, in the church, you put a bunch of people together who love Jesus and they're nice people, uh, that harmony is just going to follow, right? 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 <laughs> No, and he found that. No, you can put a bunch of nice people together who love Jesus uh, and, and want to, you know, keep a focus on the Lord. And yet unity doesn't just happen. It doesn't always naturally follow. It has to be worked for. It takes work. And some some researchers have done some studies on unity and disunity, and they they came up with a really long, nuanced answer to what the problem is that leads to disunity. And the really long, nuanced answer is, people! (laughs) Right? It's us! (laughs) Because of our sin... And our selfishness and sometimes also just our, our biases, our blind spots, our, our own passions or, or things that have shaped us in life previously, our own differing perspectives or backgrounds. Not all necessarily bad things, but are things that make it difficult sometimes to share life together. And yet, we read in the New Testament about the early church, especially in the book of Acts, and we see some provo- profound examples of unity. We We just read aloud in verse 32 of chapter 4 about remarkable unity. When we see it, it should leap off the page because it's so uncommon, because it's so rare and hard to come by. When we see it, we should say, hold on a second, let's take note. So Acts 4, verse 32, look at it again. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. So, here at the end of chapter 4, we see another one of these progress reports. So, as we're studying the book of Acts, there's a couple of these progress reports where the author, Luke, will slow down, and he'll give us just like a little summary. A snapshot of how the church is doing and what the church is up to, and this is one of them. We're going to say, "Hey, here's here's what's going on." He stops the narrative and describes verse thirty-two. All the believers were of one heart and mind. Do you see that in verse thirty-two? All the believers, at this point we're talking thousands of Jews who have converted to being Jesus followers, acknowledging him as the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the King, thousands strong walking with him. It says they're of one heart and mind. That's pretty remarkable that they look at one another and say, hey, we're on the same team. We have a shared purpose, a common goal. We're shoulder to shoulder in our convictions, or we're sharing deep friendship and work advancing the gospel together, which of course, again, raises for us the question of how? How do they have such remarkable unity? How can we today live in a a united way as a church family? Thousands together, one heart and mind. I mean, it's hard enough to get five of us to agree on something let alone this movement called the church, thousands strong in Jerusalem. So to answer that, first let's realize something. When we're reading the Bible, simple uh, rule of hermeneutics, when you're interpreting the Bible, context is key. We have to read the Bible in context, meaning we don't just read like one verse. We helicopter in, grab a verse, pluck it out, move it over here, and we make it you know, to mean whatever we want it to mean. We don't do that, we have to read it in context, meaning this verse is in relationship to the verses that come after it and the verses that come before it. It's a part of a paragraph, it's a part of a chapter, it's a part of a letter, right? There's some some context that helps us understand how to interpret it, what it means, how to apply it. And so, when we're reading through chapter 4 of the book of Acts, we have to see the context. What came around verse 32, Now realize, again, that um, the the numbers, the verse numbers, uh, weren't in the original manuscripts. The numbers, and even the section headings, like if you have a Bible like mine that has section headings that maybe gives, you know, there's like a little break and it says like a theme, like the unity of the church or something like that. Um, The section headings weren't original to the manuscripts either. Uh, Those are, the section headings and the numbers, those are something we added later, simply to help us understand, organize Reference the Bible easily, that sort of thing. But so, when you're reading the Bible, just because it's a, you know, a new chapter or a new verse number or uh, has a section heading, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's disconnected from other parts. These aren't like um, isolated blog posts that are just like downloaded into the, the book. It's, um, it's one you know, unified message. So, even though 32 starts a new section in a lot of our Bibles, we gotta look before it about what, what just happened. What happened in verse 31? It says this, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So after Peter and John were on trial, remember that starting in chapter 3, they got in some trouble with the law, they fought the law. We're not sure who won yet. We're going to wait to find out. Uh, They were told to stop preaching about Jesus, and they're like, "Uh, no, thanks, we're going to keep preaching about Jesus. They were threatened and pressured by the Sanhedrin. They go back to the believers, and the text tells us they all pray together. Verse 31 tells us what happens after they prayed. Verse 24 said that uh, together they lift their voices in prayer. So it's like this unified cry out to God, asking for help, asking for boldness to continue preaching the gospel. And then it says that they have this this fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to continue boldly preaching the gospel. And then, right afterwards in verse 32, we read about their unity, and so, the key here to unity, we see prayer, we see the filling of the Holy Spirit that not only leads to boldness, but also unites the church together, giving them one heart and mind. Like we talked about before, there's, there's so much that, that works against our unity as a church. It's so hard to come by. It requires a supernatural work of God to bring the church together. In fact, if you go in uh, one of the famous passages on the church is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 it's where we get that that image of the body of Christ how there's one body and we are all members or different parts of it with different gifts and functions if you go and read through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where it's describing the body of Christ uh, look at it if you do do this this afternoon read through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and just make note of all the times it references the Holy Spirit there's a lot of them (laughs) And it indicates that the Holy Spirit is key to binding us together as a church family. We're baptized in in one spirit. We share in the same spirit of God, and he unifies us together. Verse 33 hints at this as well. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 33. It says, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. So, leading to their unity was prayer, was the Holy Spirit, and God's grace powerfully at work in them. Grace is a word that means favor or unmerited favor. Grace is getting something we don't deserve, being given a gift, a blessing that we didn't earn or work for. And it talks about here how God's grace was powerfully at work within them. This church, the community of believers, was shaped by, fueled by the grace of God. That word grace, it's at the heart of our message, right? What is the gospel, the, the good news of, of salvation uh, through faith in Christ? By God's grace. Salvation, not by works, right? Eternal life with God is not earned or worked for. We don't jump through the spiritual hoops to deserve it. And look at us, we've arrived, we achieved it. No, uh, salvation is a gift of God's grace to be received by faith in Christ. So the heart of our message is this grace, but here's what happens. Sometimes we think grace gets us in the door, but then it's our works and effort and earning that keeps us in the community. God's grace saves us, but then our works sustain us. God's grace starts the Christian life, but then we have to carry it on and finish it. But we see here that the life of the church, they're, they're already believers. They've come to know Jesus as Savior, and now it says God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, leading them to live this new life together. So God's grace not only saves them, but sustains them. Right? God's grace is not only the beginning of the Christian life, but the, continuation, the, the uh, continuation of the Christian life is by the grace of God. It's all grace, right, from start to finish. And so the the unity of the church happens through prayer, the Holy Spirit filling them, the grace of God at work among them. Now I want you to see in the text what starts to happen as the church is unified. How do they start to live? How is their, their unity displayed? In other words, look at verse 32 again. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. Brought the money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So they were of one heart and mind. They were unified as a church. And that was expressed or displayed or lived out in how they treated one another. You see, their unity led to action. Unity for the church was was visible. As they were generous, sharing their resources, giving sacrificially. Those who had extra resources, some of them uh, owned property or were landlords. And some of them decided to sell those investments and give the proceeds to those who had need in the community, distributed often by the apostles. And so takeaway here, uh, unity is displayed when we love one another. Unity is displayed or expressed or it's visible when we love one another. So it wasn't as if they they came together as a church on the weekend, you know, and they like sang some songs and did like the awkward church greeting time that makes introverts uncomfortable and gave some high fives. And again, the awkward church greeting time, it's not in the Greek text, but I'm pretty sure they did that too. Okay? Um... It wasn't just like, hey, we sing some songs, we we give some high fives, and that's what it means to be unified as a church. I mean, that's part of it. Like, the warmth and love and fellowship here is part of it. But uh, their unity was displayed in how they loved one another. Like, beyond just the Sunday gathering. How they shared life together. How they, they cared for those in need in their community. Now... This is actually the second time in the book of Acts that we've seen this sort of thing happening. Um, If you remember, Luke wrote in chapter 2 about the early church and some of the things that they were doing. We spent a lot of time there a few months ago in chapter 2, and this is what he said. Flashback, Acts 2, verse 44. Another one of those progress reports. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Saying that they had everything in common wasn't meaning they had all like mutual interest, and they all you know like they all had the same hobbies and played racquetball or whatever. Um, everything in common meaning they they viewed their possessions and resources as something that was to be held in common and shared for those who were in need. Now, if Luke, the apostle, um, excuse me, the author of the gospel here. Um, or excuse me the author of his gospel and the book of Acts if he would go to such trouble as to repeat this twice we saw it in chapter two we see it here again in chapter four that's a clue for us that that this is important and we should pay attention to it right like repetition we say is the bible's highlighter Okay? So when we see it coming up again, especially on expensive first century, hard to come by parchment paper, uh, we should say, hey, there's something important going on here. Not only that it's repeated, but this is really strong language. I mean, this level of commitment and devotion uh, was really reserved in the ancient world for family members. Like, this is how you cared for people who were blood. This is how you cared for those in your family. This wasn't a way you treated strangers or, or neighbors. And I think that should tell us something, right, about what the church is. Part of his point is that the church is this new family, this new family of God, that when we come to faith in Jesus, we not only now have God as our Father, but we have this whole host of, of messy and complicated brothers and sisters that we now get to share life with. That's all you guys. We're this new family focused on Jesus. And so one takeaway is simply to say, hey, God in Christ has made us this new family. And so following Jesus is going to change how I actually live my life and relate with other people. Right, sometimes we just say, hey, following Jesus, it's about this, like, intellectual, mental ascent to a list of ideas, and I, like, embrace the label Christian, and I say, like, I'm a Christian on my Facebook profile, it's, I don't even know if we, that's out a thing anymore, like, but, you know, we, we just embrace the label, and that's what it means. But we see that, you know, like, being a Christian means it's going to change the way we live and interact with people. We're embracing the ways of Jesus. And the ways of the kingdom marked by love and peace and generosity and humility and purity and compassion. So, the believers, they lived, they lived open-handed, right? It says that they, they saw that their resources belonged to God, essentially, and that they were merely stewards of what they had. See, verse 32 again, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. That's pretty remarkable. That none of the believers, in other words, were like, mine! (laughs) This is my stuff! You stay away! They didn't claim that it was their own, they shared everything they had. Um, When we do Rooted here at FBC... We've done three times now. When we run Rooted, it's a 10-week discipleship course introduction to walking with Jesus, covering the basics of the faith. There's one whole week that's devoted to money and finances and resources and how we view them, our material possessions. And one of the big takeaways every time that we want to make sure people grasp is the concept of stewardship, right? That we are not owners of our things, we are stewards, Everything we have has been entrusted to us by God. He's given it to us to use uh, for his purposes and his kingdom. And there's a big difference, right, between being an owner versus being a steward. If you own something, who do you have to consult before you use it? Nobody! Right? See, it's yours. Do whatever you want with it uh, because it belongs to you. But if you're a steward of something and someone else has entrusted you with something, then who do you have to consult before you use it? Or consider uh, whose wishes and whose heart is behind it when you think about how you want to use it. Whoever owns it, right? And so with, with our, our finances, our possessions, uh, we are to view them as things entrusted to us by God to steward wisely and well, yes, for our enjoyment in plenty of ways, And also for the good of the kingdom and the good of those around us. God makes it clear in scripture, his heart for the poor. His heart for those in need. There's over 2,000 Bible verses about God's heart for the poor. You see this all the way back in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 15. Look at it. It says, Deuteronomy 15 verse 7. If anyone is poor among you, your fellow Israelites... Or in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Or we can look to the prophets, Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? God's essentially saying, hey, here's what I want. This is actually what I want you to do. To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? So we see God's heart in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy. We see it in the prophets. Uh, We see, even in in the teaching of Jesus, he'll even say something as provocative as saying, basically, your love for me and for the Father is going to be measured by how you love and care for the least of these among you. How you care for the vulnerable. So God cares about the poor. He wants them to have what they need to survive and thrive in life. It's not saying that everyone will have the same amount, necessarily, the same wealth or possessions. But I think it's a biblical principle to say we should desire that everyone would have enough. <laughs> enough. Now, some qualifiers to talk to you because a lot of you are nervous right now. <laughs> some qualifiers here. And, and then a warning to follow. First, the qualifiers. Notice the giving's voluntary. It's prompted by the Spirit. In individual's hearts to say, here's how I feel God is leading me. It wasn't as if church leadership came and said, hey you, sell that house. Or like, hey, welcome to the church, Darren, you know, the board's prayed about it and we want you to sell your car and give us the money, thank you, we're going to distribute it. <laughs> it wasn't that sort of thing, it was voluntary. It was motivated by love and, and generosity as the Spirit led. Also notice that they don't donate Everything that they have. Because they still have needs and they still live in houses and have to survive as well. And we'll read later in the book of Acts that believers still own property and houses and live in them and host church gatherings in them. Okay, So they didn't give away everything that they had, but they donated from time to time as there was need. All right, look again at verse 34. It says that there were no needy persons among them for... From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. So from time to time, people realize, hey, there's a need, and so I'm going to use my resources that God's given me to meet that need. It's voluntary. It's not everything. It's as there is need. Notice also that I don't think this text is teaching or encouraging sort of a, a welfare state where we, you know, um reward and celebrate people who don't work or, or um, people who could work, but choose not to because they don't want to, um, and just like live off of the generosity of others. That's not what this is advocating, because the, the Apostle Paul will say in Thessalonians, hey, uh, if there are people who can work, but just don't want to, they refuse to, um, they shouldn't eat. That's what Paul says, pretty, pretty strong words. And so there's a balance in Scripture, right? Personal responsibility and working hard is encouraged, but also generosity to the poor. And here's the key, who through no fault of their own, often are caught in vicious cycles of poverty. The church should care for those in need. And so Luke tells us, hey, the early church was a place where that sort of generosity and care and love was on display. There were no needy people among them. So here, here's the warning, then. Those are some qualifiers, and here, here's the warning. Let's not be too quick to brush this off. Right? If we were, like, overly relieved by the qualifiers, like, oh, this, this probably isn't for me. Okay, good. That's for them. Um, maybe that's something we should pay, pay attention to. Because we are some of the wealthiest people in the history of the world. And most of us... Have our needs met and and live in in abundance, and live in great comfort and great leisure, and have all kinds of options for for entertainment. And we we don't always take this call seriously to sacrificial, radical, surprising generosity. In fact, one of the criticisms of the American church. Uh, often goes like this, hey, you'll, you'll confront people on their sexual sin or hot topics, but you kind of shrug your shoulders at their greedy hearts or their selfish view of finances. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes hey, we'll confront and talk real boldly about this one, but the whole like greediness and selfishness, like, yeah, you know, I mean. When really, as people of the book, we should care about both. Right, whatever God's word says, we should say, "Hey, this is uh, important." Jesus taught on this. He was clear: we can't serve two masters. We got to take this seriously. Now, I think one of the reasons, let me just say too, I'm going to say this later, but I just want you, want you to know, church, I'm so encouraged by your generosity. Let me just say, I I think when I think about how open-handed or closed-handed we are as a church, so many of you are so generous so open-handed. Whenever, like seriously, whenever we have some kind of call we put out to you to say, hey, we're doing a year-end gift to the uh, families at Robert Simple. Or, hey, we're doing a youth ministry fundraiser. uh, You guys show up. And you show up with your checkbooks, and it's so encouraging. I mean, you guys really live out generosity. I'm so impressed. And so I want you to know, this isn't like a, you know, smack from the pastor. I truly am encouraged by your generosity. Now, I think there are probably some of us, right, who uh, don't live that way and and could jump into the fun, right, come be part of the fun. Um, There are others of us say, hey, I I already give quite generously, but maybe God's prompting us uh, to even more generosity, to take another look at the needs around us and the people around us and say, hey, how could I use what I have to bless them? But let me just say this, one of the reasons we don't always live generously is fear. Sometimes it's a little scary, to, to give money away, and we think, hey, we might need it down the line, or maybe things are a little tight, so I don't know if I can afford to, to, to help out in this way, there's fear. I heard a story one time that demonstrated this. My friend Scott is a, a pastor in Hawaii, suffering for Jesus out there, and he told me this story of a, a family in their church that did an international adoption. So they adopted a little girl from a third world country, and she was a little over one at the time that they adopted her. And they were, of course, overjoyed to have her in their family, but they started to notice something about their new daughter. They noticed that whenever they fed her, she would just... Just gorge herself, just like eat as much as humanly possible. And not only that, she would also grab hold of, with her little hands, as much food as she could and hold on to it for for hours. And they learned that living in an orphanage for her had developed within her a scarcity mindset. Where where because of realities there, uh, food wasn't readily available all the time. And she would often go hungry. And so when there was food, even as a baby, she knew that she needed to get as much of it as she could and hold on to it as tightly as she could because she didn't know when more of it was going to be available. And so the sweet little girl would stuff herself with, with Cheerios And then grab a handful of Cheerios and then carry them around the house. And her parents, her new parents, would try to pry her hands open and say, Please stop carrying Cheerios around the house. And she would scream as they tried to pry her hands open. Because she thought she needed to cling to it tightly. They tried to convince her, It's okay, you're you're gonna get more food later. You can trust us. But she wouldn't release the Cheerios. See, she didn't understand that, hey, things are different now. She was part of a new family. And she had a new last name. And she had a new identity as their child. She was part of a family, and so she was loved and cared for, and her needs were going to be taken care of. She had a new home. She didn't have to be afraid about a shortage of food any longer. And she was going to eat a lot better things than Cheerios down the road. But how many of us are just like that little girl? Right, before trusting in Jesus, we were on our own, had to fend for ourselves, trying to make a buy in the world, carving out a place for us. Uh, carving out an identity for ourselves, busy, you know, making sure our needs were met and our desires were met, and we had a death grip on our Cheerios and our resources, unwilling or unable to consistently release them. We had to get as much as we could and hold as tightly as we could. But now think about what's true of us in the gospel. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus for us, we have been not only forgiven of all of our sin, but now adopted into the family of God. And God calls us his children, his beloved sons and daughters. Who we're seated at his table. We have a father in heaven who, who knows what we need, and he sits us at his table, and he cares for us, and he's the creator and sustainer of all things, so there's not going to be a shortage of resources. We live in his home now, and so we can abandon this this scarcity mindset, and we can can live open-handedly with our Cheerios. We can live a different sort of life. That's all possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He brings us home through his blood. So, the text gives us a positive example of this. If we're wondering, hey, in theory, sounds great, uh, but let's narrow in on a specific verse 36. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called, called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Luke describes, hey, here's, here's in general how the church is living, but here's a specific example of, of one man who, who did exactly what we're talking about. Joseph called Barnabas... It's a cool nickname. Um, back in the ancient world, it was, it was common. If you had a common name like Joseph, um, they would give you a nickname that would demonstrate something about your character or personality, who you were. So uh, Barnabas, uh, son of encouragement, reflected his character and his heart. And he's a great example of, of living out this shared life together, looking at his resources and saying, hey, how can I live generously, meeting the needs of others? And he does exactly that. Sold the field, gave the money to the apostles to be distributed. So that's the invitation for us today. Is to consider how we could be like Joseph, Barnabas, how we could use what we have for the kingdom. To consider with fresh eyes, are there people in our midst, people around us that have needs that maybe I could help meet? Is there money or, or possessions that I have that could be used in a greater way to bless someone or to bless the kingdom. Again, I said it earlier, you are a generous church. We saw that on display at the Spaghetti fundraiser last night. Amazing. We're so grateful. You giving already. Just your faithful tithes and offerings each month um, are, are so consistent we're able to upkeep our building and pay our staff and support missions and reach out to our community and just it's been remarkable over the years how um how generous you've been and how stable financially this church has been because of you so i'm grateful this text isn't really about like monthly consistent tithing i would say Again, so many of you already do that. Of course, we encourage, or we talk about how in membership, that that's part of the commitment is financially supporting the church. This text isn't really about that. It's really about, hey, above and beyond, like just prompting by the Spirit, hey, there's a need. Hey, how can I give what I have to meet it? I mean, yes, monthly giving is a good thing, so not against that, Uh, but this is saying, hey, above and beyond, Lord, what are the needs around me? How can I live generously and open-handedly? What would you have me do? Dave Ramsey said, the most fun you'll ever have with money is giving. And those of you that are generous, uh, you know that that is true, right? You see get to bless people in some really, really cool ways. Now, the last thing I want to point to in the text, the church is unified, generous. But look at verse 33 again. It says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So their unity is not only displayed in how they love one another and meet needs, their unity is also displayed in how they live on mission together. Unity is displayed when we live on mission together. So their their, their mission, notice, it's not just to, hey, like, love one another in here and, and provide for material needs and, like, be just some kind of, like, social action agency, and food pantry. I mean, that's part of what they're doing. Obviously, they're loving one another, meeting the needs around them. But their mission is bigger than that, just meeting material needs. Their mission is proclaiming the gospel, helping people's spiritual needs be met as they need salvation and forgiveness of sins. So they're testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus so we see in the church, in a church that is filled with the Spirit and centered on the gospel, we see both gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration. We see, as, as the language we use, it's in your bulletin, that we talk about what it means to go. We talk about sharing good news and showing great love. We don't want to be a church that's all talk, hey, Jesus loves you, hey, Jesus loves you, but we don't really, and we're not going to do anything about it. Um, And we also don't want to be a church that just says, hey, like social action, and hey, we're going to feed you, but not tell you about Jesus and salvation. We have to share good news, the good news of the gospel and Jesus' resurrection, and show great love, meet the needs of those around us, care for the poor, love people in, in practical and material ways. We have to embrace both. And the church was doing exactly that. One of the ways that we celebrate and remember our unity as a church is by taking communion. We do this twice a month here at FBC. We take the elements, Jesus' broken body, Jesus' shed blood, it proclaims the gospel. Realize when we take communion it does two things, it's it's proclaiming the gospel. And that Jesus will come again, right? We proclaim his resurrection until he returns. We remember what he's done for us. Communion is also reminding us of our unity, that we together take these elements. It's a a family meal. We together share in the bread and the cup. So we look around the room as we take these elements and realize we're part of this new family and the foundation of this new family is the work of Christ. And so, uh, hopefully you received the elements when you came in. Uh, if not, Darren has them. I'm actually going to need to grab mine down here. forgot mine. We invite uh, everyone who's a follower of Jesus to participate with us. So even if, uh, if you're visiting or this isn't your home church, uh, you're not a member here. It's okay. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, uh, we want to celebrate communion with you. So we invite you to participate if that's not you, you're here and you're like, I don't really know about this whole Jesus thing, wouldn't consider yourself a believer, you can just leave the element uh, elements on the chair next to you and just reflect on what we've talked about so far. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll take the elements in a moment. Father, we love you and we thank you for the truths of the gospel, that through the work of Christ, his shed blood, his broken body on the cross and his resurrection we have been invited back into your family, adopted as sons and daughters who are beloved and can call you Father. We worship you, Jesus. Thank you for your, your death on the cross. We, we will take these elements in just a moment in remembrance of you. And thank you for the fact that it's your work, Jesus, that binds us together as a family. We're not unified by anything else but but you, your presence among us, this shared commitment and life we have with you. God, would our hearts just so overflow with, with love and generosity because of what you've poured into our hearts? Would our hearts so overflow that we would just be agents of blessing and love and mercy and compassion to everyone around us, especially those within our church? Help us trust you pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and Jesus broke it and said, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this in remembrance of me. Amen.